Oh, yeah, our first square number. No, it's not. Oh, no, you're right. Two. Oh, no. Everyone, someone take away my minor Two's in math. Two's not square. Oh, sh- no, I mean two squared is four. Get out. That's what I meant. Ah, oh, no. All right, fine. Our second square number. Uh, this totally actually- matters. <laughs> Carl's is giving me this like amazing sarcastic thumbs up. I wish you guys could see this. Take a picture. We're not taking a picture. I'm not going to take a picture. <laughs> Welcome to Back in the Field, Episode 9. My name is Carl. And my name is Arthi. And today we're going to be talking about Sal's Pizza. This is the... I wasn't going anywhere with that statement. Anywhere with that sentence at all. So this is the ninth episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That's where I was going with that. (laughs) And it's also the ninth episode of our podcast. I actually really like this episode. Although our, our discussion points are actually pretty short, so we'll see how far we go. But I actually really like this episode. I think it's I think it's really funny and I think it's probably one of the first episodes where we get to see like more from Jake, I guess is the best way of putting that. More? You mean like deeper into Jake? Yeah. Maybe? Let's go with deeper into Jake. So before we get into that, let's uh talk about what actually happens in this episode. Yeah, so our A-plot is basically that a pizza place that is near and dear to Jake's heart has burned down, and the fire marshal, played by Patton Oswalt, not the penguin, has uh, decided, or is, is kind of bungling. You can't convince me of that. I'm sorry? You can't convince me he's not the penguin. <laughs> so yeah, so fire marshal Boone and Jake disagree fundamentally about the direction of the investigation. Meanwhile, uh, Amy is a jelly of Rosa. Yep. Uh, Rosa was offered the captain spot at, uh, what's it called? Ropesburg, New Ropesburg, Jersey. Ropesburg, New Jersey. The most boring town alive. And Amy, who desperately wants to make captain, um, throws a fit. Yes, but it's the quietest fit I've ever seen. She's pretty noisy. She does get occasionally noisy. No, but like, for the most part, she's pretty quiet. I mean, the, the most <laughs> sterbio... She gets she she needles Rosa, which yep. anyone with two eyes and half a brain could tell was not a good idea to start with. That is literally how you die. <laughs> Spoilers I mean, for the end of your movie, Amy Santiago. Oh you die with Rosa's axe in your face. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I mean, and literally, like one just had to watch Rosa's interactions with Hitchcock and Scully to know that needling Rosa on any level for any length of time was never going to end well. Mm-hmm. There is, I do love the Amy. Well, I guess we're just diving into this. I say this every episode. I say that every episode. Let's just whatever. We're we, gonna. We've got an entire letter left. I'm sorry. We we haven't even covered the C plot. Oh yeah, God. And the, then the, the C plot is that. The precinct's computers have been hacked by a hacker named Savant. You know, right? Uh, and <laughs> he printed all of their search history publicly. So, God, how did I forget about the C-plot? That's my I know, favorite it's a plot in the entire story. It's a national treasure. I know, because Gina is perfect. This Gina, is and the Terry, Gina and Terry have to hire a new IT guy yes. to keep S- Savant out. Yes, and God. Gina reveals her hidden depths. 
Yes. <laughs> Which, as Carl noted in our notes, Gina's hidden deaths are... We'll start from the bottom, I guess. Sure. Uh, Gina's Pizza hidden... nom. That's what's written on the bottom of <laughs> my literally. paper. I meant from the plot lines. God, Carl, why do you have to be this way? Can't I have anything? We've covered this. <laughs> I like that you remember we covered this. No, so G- Carl's notes are amazing for this, and Carl's notation for the C plot is that Gina's hidden depths are that she steals every scene, which is a hundred percent correct. And in fact, Chelsea Peretti steals like every scene effortlessly, without like just so perfect. Whoever is like the primary voice behind Gina in the writing room, you're a fucking genius. <laughs> like Gina's just her timing is perfect. The what she says is so crazy perfect. Oh god. And it, I'm sorry I'm sorry fandom that it took me until Sal's Pizza for me to fully appreciate Gina's perfection. I mean, you also said that in the Vulture, so. That's true. I say that a lot. I feel like I constantly under under You'll get right with Gina, except Gina is your personal savior. <laughs> and stop reneging on your commitments to the Church of Peretti, Linetti, whatever. The same thing. I, don't, I literally have no response to that. So Gina's perfect in this episode. And uh, and her, her pairing with Terry is particularly great. Because usually, one thing I thought was notable is that usually uh, Gina's pairing with Terry is overtly like her objectifying him completely. Which, mm-hmm. one, is a nice gender reversal. Because usually it's not that way. Although I suppose in a comedy, such things are played for laughs, which it is here, but like, I guess differently, whatever. But like, this episode is surprisingly bereft of Gina actively sexualizing Terry in a gross, kind of uncomfortable way. And instead, the only really sexual thing she says is, Savant tore down our walls, but he can build them up again, bigger and stronger than before. Like, that's that's the most, like, overtly sexual thing she says. And it's about Savant. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the way things work is... It's about uh, a metaphor. It's not even about Savant. It's no, about- it's about Savant. I think that she saw in Savant an opportunistic anarchist. And that, <laughs> that hid something primal in her. <laughs> Do-, Do I say primal too much? <laughs> on this podcast? Is that my, like, <laughs> ship name? <laughs> I will say this. I do hope in season two, Savant comes back because I think that kid was hysterical. Like he, he, his torrid passion with Gene Linetti can be the spark that drives her back into drives Boyle back into her arms. I don't know. That that's for a later episode about our spec for season two overall. I do hope that Savant comes back, though. Oh, yeah, totally. He's great. Yeah. Just plus like the only like major ethnic population in, that is that has a pretty solid stronghold in Brooklyn that's not represented on the show is the Asian American community. True. They're mostly in Bensonhurst, which does actually appear in the finale in Charges and Specs. He says, "Why did you bring me to this warehouse in Bensonhurst at 9 a.m.?" <laughs> and Peralta's like, "You was down me too, sir." That's when that happens. They're in Bensonhurst in that scene. Right, right. Uh anyway, so uh, Terry and Gina are on the prowl for a new IT director for the for the squad. And Gina just destroys every candidate yeah. with her relentless ability to destroy anyone. I love the logic. Like, it looked so random and, like, Terry was so frustrated. And I like that Terry played the audience in that scene. Because mm-hmm. I remember the first time I was, I was like, what the fuck is she doing? But, like, I was also like, oh, God, Gina's so weird. God. 
And like, then she tied it, she brought it back, and it was great. It was really, uh, what's your favorite Jay-Z song? Yeah, no, uh, she does, she asks for it three times, and then the guy freaks the fuck out, which is just great. I like that. And we discover that he thinks the correct answer to what's your favorite Jay-Z song is Big Pimpin'. My favorite thing about that, though, is that her response is, mm, you're wrong. Gina's response is so great. Just like the, what's your favorite Jay-Z song? And then what does she ask the, she, I know she flosses in front of one of them. And the other one she um, yells at. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She spooks him. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious because her, like, condescending laughter I, in that scene actually, I think, is what makes it. Because it's not just that she goes, Bleh! It's that she also goes, ha, 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 Like. And she's like, sorry, did I scare you? Yeah. No, it's perfect. I just love, like, I just like the, the timing. Her timing is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, and Terry's reactions are, like, both, like, a combination of dear God and, like, just, like, exasperated, but also, like, faintly amused, but mostly exasperated. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's great. I, I do, I think the lady who's, like, so disgusted by the flossing, like, out of everything, flossing. Like, what if she hadn't been disgusted by flossing? Would she have escalated? She would have escalated. What would she possibly have How escal- did she realize that immediately, though? Whatever. Okay, fine. So Gina Gina steals every goddamn scene she's in with very little effort. So I got to say, A-plus job team. And so, spoilers for those who haven't seen the last episode yet. You should see the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll always warn you. A lot of people, you know... Gina getting with Charles did not come out of left field. Like, I've been rewatching episodes recently, and there are a lot of situations in which they flirt. Like, you would never think that because he's so timid and she's such a fire starter. They have a lot more in common than you think. Like, in this episode, the, the main thing that Gina brings to the table is the ability to immediately see to the core of anyone and attack their insecurities. That's what Boyle does in The Bet. That's what he does when he's, like, high. And that's a hereditary thing for Gina, right? Like, that's what her father did when he got his vasectomy unreversed. She and he had the same truth bomb gene, which is why they're endgame. In my head. (laughs) Carl, you're totally right, too, because I've also been rewatching episodes lately. Which is why I'm able to quote scenes verbatim. It's kind of a problem, guys. But I will say that I've been noticing more like the show kept pairing them up against one another in like advisory situations, essentially. So like in the pilot, Boyle's like, Gina, where should I take Rosa? And Gina's like, nowhere, because she's never going to be with you. <laughs> and then uh, Gina like actively sur- like harasses, I guess. Uh, Charles through uh, Carlene, like yeah. in in I think that's episode two, right? Yep. And she's then, trying to get him unfocused on Rosa. Yes, and she does that consistently. Like in Christmas, she she tells him, "No, you have to show up at least six hours before the flight." <laughs> like Gina, Gina and Boyle consistently get kind of thrown together, and then they interact, and they kind of like like bounce off one another. Because it's a lot of fun for her to harass him and try to destroy his carefully constructed version of himself, which is not actually working out. 
And we do see him stand up to her before we see him stand up to Jake, which is also kind of interesting. He, She's like, I'm not your assistant. He's like, you're everyone's assistant. That's literally your job. And then, what was it? Uh, she comes in with the pie in 48 hours. Both of these are from 48 hours. Yeah. And, uh, and he says, what are you doing here? You don't even come in on days you're supposed to work. <laughs> like, she's the first person that Charles is kind of like. Because she's in his face and he doesn't idolize her. And yeah. frankly, that's a lot better than his own selected OTPs, mm-hmm. which are Rosa and Jake. He is equally crushing on Jake. It's just that it's not a problem because, yeah. There was a great. Uh, we're gonna. I guess we're gonna sidebar again. But there was a great Do meta. No, we never unsidebar. Can borrow this. Yes, you can borrow my I've Iron been, Man. I've TV. been wanting to watch Iron Man for years, but it's not on Netflix. What? You haven't seen that movie? No, I've seen it. I just oh haven't seen it again. Oh my god! Yeah, no, we can. You can totally borrow that, or we're we can keeping have... this. <laughs> we're keeping this right here. We're totally keeping this. Are you kidding? We should have movie night together, Carl. Also, there's. Have you ever seen Amelie? You can borrow Amelie. I too. have seen Amelie. I looked it up after watching The Vulture. <laughs> it turns out that almost everything I was remembering from Chocolat happened in Amelie. <laughs> And then I remembered everything that happened in Chocolat. I just thought that Chocolat happened with, like, Audrey Tateau as the main character. And I was uh, wrong about that. I think that Chocolat had Johnny Depp in it. Yes. Pretending to be Roma. Yes. Is there any genocided people he won't pretend to be? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, Carl asking the hard questions. Let's talk about, about <laughs> the show. Amy and Rosa and Charles and Jake. God, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Amy and Rosa and Charles and Jake. So so we mentioned that the plot the, the two primary plot lines in this episode are that Charles and Jake are off trying to solve the mystery of why Sal's pizza is burned down. And then we're also looking at Amy and Rosa having to deal with the fact that Rosa was offered a captaincy before Amy was. And Amy's jealous. And these, this parallel of pairs of detectives is not accidental. Mm-hmm. We see the way Amy and Jake interact a lot. It's kind of adversarial, but it's essentially among equals. Mm-hmm. And we see the way Charles and Jake interact a lot. And it's, you know... One, Turner and Hooch? It's, it's, it's Turner and Hooch, but it's also like uh, Boyle trying to assert himself sometimes, but Jake just, you know doing his own thing regardless. That's especially true here. Like Charles is trying to assert himself as a pizza guy and Jake won't let him bring his bib, even though like he has one right in his hand. He won't let him have a bib. Who doesn't let a guy have a bib? Uh, Amy and Rosa, we haven't seen on their own before. We've seen them with other people and we haven't seen them in an adversarial position. And it turns out that when this happens... Amy is the uh, infantile one. And Rosa is the one who's like, get in the car. I'm driving. We're going to this far (laughs) off place so I can teach you about the way the world works. Yeah, uh, that is actually almost a direct parallel to the episode where uh, to to the episode with all the fat jokes. To Emmy time. Oh, God, no, we blocked that out. Well, because in Emmy time, Jake's the one who says, get in the car. I'm driving. Mm -hmm. You're holding my bag. Uh, You can pick the music. Yeah. Rosa doesn't even let Amy pick the damn music. She drags her away by the ear. Yes. and She and, was warned. She was warned. So the reason that this dynamic shows up between them is that, in this episode, is that 
Amy is threatened and becomes competitive, and she learned that behavior from competing with her older brothers. Yeah. So she treats Rosa like she would treat her older brothers and becomes baby Amy whining her way onto the at, uh, into a place at the table. And we've gotten a hint of this, but I don't think they necessarily decided on it yet. When Rosa says, you know, you're smart, you're articulate. And she's like, so are you. It's like, why am I offended by that? It kind of comes back to the same place. She wants uh, Rosa to respect her, right? Because... But from a strength standpoint. Yeah. Like, like kind of like a physical strength standpoint almost, which is very much like masculine posturing. Yeah. I believe it. And it's something that Rosa is equally capable of. Yeah. More but, capable of. Yeah, but Rosa does not care. Like, that is not Rosa's jam. Just like getting to know people. <laughs> Still my favorite Rosa line is definitely when she says, I love getting to know people. It's my jam. Like That's, that's, a, just that's my, a really great line. Just the delivery of that is amazing. But wrong episode. That's Pontiac Bandit. In this one, I do like that Amy is actively trying to gain Rosa's approval in a roundabout way. Because, like... She's actually really more trying to... So, to assert that Rose isn't better than her, right? She's not actually trying to get Rose's approval. She's just stung by the idea that she's been passed over in favor of Rosa. Right, and that that really is weird to me because, like, it is very clear, I think, even now, that, like, Rosa's been a cop longer than Amy. Yes, but I think that Amy is outperforming Rosa. She lands way more big arrests than Rosa does. She definitely goes after more than yeah. Rosa does. Okay, I can see that from a purely like ambition, my ego and my ambition standpoint. Yeah, and and she's actively aiming herself at Captain. Everyone knows that. Oh yeah. Rosa isn't actively aiming herself at Captain, no. or at least not publicly, because she doesn't want anyone to know about her ambitions. I would like before that before we leave. Amy and Rosa to talk about the resolution of that. Oh, yeah. Which is a big shipping milestone for the Amy Rosa fanatics. Yes. So in the car on the way back from Ropesburg, Ropesburg New Jersey, the most boring place on earth, they admit it. <laughs> what was it? There's a donut. There's like a... There's a bakery attached to the police station. <laughs> and they finally ordered bullets for their deputies. As Rosa suggested. Their primary crime is tricycle theft. Yeah. It's not a good place. Well, no, it's too good of a place. Yeah, I guess, for cops. So, on the way back, Amy lays out the reason that she was being such a jerk. Her her reasoning is basically, I always had to fight for a table. A place at the table. A place at the table, right. I had to fight for this table. (laughs) I had, you know, I I punched a man on the street to get a table. And this is, you know, there's a big myth that women have to compete with each other for everything. Mm -hmm. It's created by a system that wants to keep women from collaborating. And Rosa's response to this is, that's bullshit. You're not the only woman around. We have to stick up for each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. I think that is a wonderful thing for the show to be saying. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) I hate to pull the eye as a woman card, but I'm actually going to do that here because I can definitely relate to Rose's position because, you know, I work in tech. We've, we've talked about that before, or I've mentioned it at least in the pilot, but the reality of it is I've, I've come onto a team before where 
you know, I, I, I think I had come in hoping that the person would be Rosa to me, that she wouldn't. The other, the other woman on your team? Yeah. We was a six person team and she and I were the only women. And, and that changed over time. But the point was like when I first started, it was just her and me for like probably three solid months. And the worst part about that is when the person who is already established or like has some amount of seniority over you sees you as a threat and unfortunately had to deal with that and that that is really difficult because because what it meant was that she saw me as competition and chose to undermine me at every turn and while amy's not doing that to rosa i don't think amy can really do that to rosa in the same way she's trying in that she's like you know sterbio and things like that she's trying to, to she's trying to whittle away at her <laughs> She's but it's not to destroy her career; it's just to make herself feel better. Yeah, when I was in that situation, I I probably would have assumed that the other woman was trying to do the same thing. Like she felt there were a lot of other situ- pieces of that situation that are complicated, that are, that complicate the whole story. But at the end of the day, you know, w- women seeing each other as competition is entirely cr- fabricated by the, as Carl likes to say, the curiarchy, and. And having been on the receiving end of that kind of behavior of of coming into a team thinking that this was not going to be the case and having to deal with it, like I know for myself, I swore I would never treat another woman that way, like another person that way, but especially not a woman, not in my industry. Um, so that was sort of our long-winded way of being like, girl, I got you. Like I, I, I definitely felt for Rosa there. And I liked the like shipping. I mean, I liked that you can read it as shippy. You can read a shippy. I don't. Neither. I read. I don't see that for them. Like I like those fix, but I mean, Jake and Amy is is my forever ship. And also, I think that it would be more productive to have a very strong friendship develop between them. And if that wants to turn into a romance after many seasons, and maybe it turns out that Jake and Amy aren't right, and all of our hearts are broken, that's great. <laughs> But all the fan fiction I wrote immediately ruined. No, no, it'll be ruined many years from now. <laughs> that would just break my heart. Also, it's already been ruined by the by the finale. A lot of it has. Yeah. yeah. God, that's like that's like thirty thousand words of. Oh, anyway. I mean, that's what fanfic is for, right? It's an extremely ephemeral medium. Oh yeah, I know you're right. That's not the part that like breaks my heart. It's the idea of them not being endgame. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, if they're not endgame, you get to be part of the armed resistance. <laughs> yes. That's how it works, right? I've heard stories about the Harry Potter fandom, but what? but we I, did not have time to get into that. I was there. You don't want to know. There's been a lot made about Amy and Rosa passing the Bechdel test. We mentioned that they actually passed the Bechdel test in the show way earlier. Yep. In episode two. Yeah, which I know a lot of a lot is made about them passing the Bechdel test in this episode. Well, it's more... It establishes a really important and really mutually nurturing relationship, mm-hmm. which is a lot rarer than passing the Bechdel test. There's more things you have to do to be an interesting and enlightened piece of feminist work. Yes. One uh, thing that helps, for example, is you know hiring women to write your fiction sometimes. Which, in this case, let's talk about how this episode is written by Lakshmi Sundaram. Thank you, Carl, for that perfect segue. Lakshmi Sundaram is the writer for this episode. Not only a woman, but a woman of color. And it makes sense to put her at the lead of an episode that is about two women of color establishing a friendship in opposition of the forces that would drive them apart. Yes. 
I think also the other thing I like about this is that coming back to the A-plot, we see more about Jake. And specifically, like, we get a, what is ostensibly clearly, like, a, a painful story about Jake's childhood. But, like, the narrative never really lets Jake wallow in his man pain. Nor does Jake himself really, like... He doesn't want to. He yeah. doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to... He also doesn't want the pity of it. No, he's really uncomfortable revealing it. Yeah. But I don't think that wanting the pity of it is a normal component of man pain. The show doesn't present it as something for us to glory in, right? It's more like, as Holt says in uh, The Apartment, none of us are going to lend him a cool half mil because he had a slightly sad childhood. Yes. Like, him and Marshall Boone, sure, they were both abandoned by their fathers. That's really bad. But, like, they're breaking down in the middle of their workplace. And Jake is massively overstepping his jurisdictions and risking... It all out turf war with the fire department. None of these are appropriate reactions to <laughs> shit what happened 15 years ago. <laughs> I really I really liked getting the glimpse into sort of Jake's like We got a glimpse of it earlier where he calls Holt Cap'n and says that Captain Crunch was the primary male role model in his home growing up. But we And we've had a lot of hints. We've never seen it spelled out. Yeah. And here it is spelled out. And... We get a range of acceptable emotions for how we should feel about it. We get between Holt's, well, that's not what I expected this to be about, to uh, Marshall Boone completely dissolving into tears and demanding that they hug like men. (laughs) We also get Boyle being like, no, I'm left out. Oh, no. I'm coming in from behind. Even though he doesn't come from exactly like... Uh, a totally peaceable family situation. No. We get a lot of n- notice in Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. The crime in this is real. I think part of the reason like we have we're like kind of struggling here even though the character moments are really great. The spine of this episode is weak. Yeah, and it makes it makes kind of reaching for the rest of it really hard, I feel. So what I say what I mean when I say that the spine is weak is that the crime they're investigating, this whole, you know, burnt down pizzeria um, a, the question of jurisdiction is fairly made up, because even if it is an arson, the fire department still has full jurisdiction. I'm led to believe by a different cop show. You're right. It just means that a different part of the fire department gets jurisdiction over it. In no way is, does the police department have any jurisdiction. Though I will say the best, like, the jurisdiction fiction here leads to one of my favorite just, like, asides, which is where, like, I... The, <laughs> I think it's gasoline. Well, there's only one way to tell. <laughs> there were more ways to tell. I think, this is, I think this is the first. Is this the first time we see Jake confronted with someone? Is this the first time we see? Like usually, it's Jake acting out and Holt having to deal with it, and it's still that in this episode. But on some level, this is Boone acting out and Jake having to deal with it. I think that that's happened before. That is no one's tagger. fantasy. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, okay. But, like, I don't know. In this case, it's, like, this is, like, job-related as opposed to them just, like, dicking around. Uh, he stops Kim, Jong-i- Kim Jong-un and Hillary Clinton from making out. <laughs> that, no, that was just hysterical. Yes, it's hysterical. It's the same thing. You don't get to rule it out because it's hysterical. This thing's also hysterical. It's definitely funny, but it's, like... You mean, you mean reprimanding someone else for not doing their job? Yeah. Um, 
Well, and actively disdaining them openly for doing their job badly. I know we get this from the vulture, but, like, that is an actively combative relationship. Which I guess Marshall Boone is, too, but it's, like... He calls him King Doofus of Doofus Island. As opposed to just straight up being, like, the vulture's the worst. Can we talk about how the firemen are all bros? Because the cops aren't. (laughs) Right, but, like... I guess they they are metaphorically fist bumping when Jake and Charles are awkwardly high-fiving across their bodies. Can we talk about how many times they high-five without looking in this episode? Or just like But they don't high-five very well. They're like, boom. I mean, it's it's not anything. It's like, there's this kind of steepling thing going on. They have some really terrible high-fives. I am a high-five connoisseur, and they're not doing it very well. But they aren't looking, which is important. Yeah. I've I've been in cooler high-five situations. I think also the other, like, weakness in the spine is that there's there's only one crime which hasn't been a problem in the past but i think like yeah i don't think that's as important as the fact that this crime is just not a hard solve they find out that this guy's alibi is made of shit is basically over they don't even need to find out (laughs) like do they need to find out a motive they're already in competition no matter what happens that's true. The big intuitive leap is not nearly as important as the fact that his alibi is super made up. It's funny because like other shows, when they get to the point where like the case doesn't matter, it's just really about character moments. NCIS, I'm looking at you. The The character moments really make up for it. And this, this episode is nothing but character moments. It's literally Gina getting character development, uh, Jake getting character development, and Amy and Rose's relationship getting like deepened and explored and fleshed out more Mm -hmm. but like weirdly it is it feels like it's harder to connect to from a meta standpoint i guess just because it feels disjointed because of the lack of the connecting spinal column oh god this metaphor got really weird one thing that i really liked you saying carl like four months ago like seriously um was uh that Andy Samberg's micro expressions have improved extraordinarily. Oh right, and yeah. When he's responding to Boone, yeah. So like, I I remember by the time we get to Tactical Village, you were like Andy Samberg's micro expressions when that first aired back in March. We were watching it together, and like afterwards, you and I were sort of decompressing after the show, and we were talking about how, like, one of the things that has become really extraordinary is how well andy samberg does micro expressions yeah it's not something that you expect from him because all of his normal expressions are so large yes and 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 he's he's extremely extraordinarily emotive which i like and so is amy with this one i think this is the first time we really see him doing like sort of more subdued or like concentrated like smaller like a series of small changes that evoke a, a range of emotional responses yes and I guess this is a good time for me to tell my Andy Samberg story. So. Or it's a good time for me to go on my Hannibal sidebar. You tell your Andy Samberg story. <laughs> we can save it. We'll put it in the person fridge. My little life. With all the corpses. Well, now you have to tell the Hannibal story. All Hannibal stories start with a person fridge full of corpses. Right. That's what I said. That's why now you have to. Go for it. Go for it. Here's my Andy Samberg story. So I was having brunch with my neighbors several weeks ago. And I mentioned to one of the attendees that I I really like the show and that Andy Samberg's on it and I think he's great and blah, blah, blah. And she told me that her friend went to film school with Andy Samberg at UCLA way back. 
and then apparently they were she and her friends and that guy they were all like having a party together and like he came up because he was still on snl at the time and they were just like oh he's ter-. like they were kind of like what like kind of dismissive of sandberg and his ability to like sort of act and be a you know functional human being i guess whatever and the guy who had gone to film school with him was like no wait allow me to show you a thing and so there exists a tape of a video project that they did in their sophomore year of university which (laughs) is probably about as high quality as any of the early lonely island videos where because the the friend was a serious actor and obviously andy sandberg's primary thing is comedy and comedic acting and like really big like goofy comedic acting they switched roles so in the short film that they produced for class he plays a totally straight role and the other guy plays the goofy comedy persona and apparently it like floored the class like just the entire it was like what the fuck where did this come from who are you and and the guy kept it because for his like role for his film tape like the tape that you send to auditions it was like an example of his range but sort of the corollary of it is he has this like short film like for posterity of of him doing a serious role and so when carl was tell- like when i heard the story i thought of carl being like man he's got these great micro expressions and I thought of the time I fell down deep, the Tumblr Celeste and Jesse Forever tag. And it's like, it's, I think one of the best things about this show is that it allows everyone on the show, including Andy Samberg, to have, to have and to demonstrate different aspects of their range that I don't think they would get to in sort of traditional comedy film. And at the end of the day, it will still let Terry Crews take a magic eight ball and crush it in his bare hands while telling a young haplifner that he will destroy him if he ever harms anyone below him unless i've had those moments too that was the best way to end this episode so everybody thank you so much for listening i'm carl my name is arthi we'll see you next time bye